Thank you. After our introduction, we're going to look at the blessing of Joseph's boys by their grandfather, and then the blessing of Jacob's sons, and then we're going to try to understand how that would relate to us today. Now, there are several different types of blessings that are mentioned in the Scripture. There's the blessing that one person gives to another, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, and that's uh, almost like a prayer. We're hoping that the good things that we suggest are going to come true. Then there would be the blessings of God, sometimes related to the covenant in Scripture, and those things are going to absolutely come true as His promises are fulfilled. But then today we have a different type of blessing, and that would be where Jacob is going to give a prophetic utterance through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the inspired Word of God. And he's going to tell his sons something of what will happen in the future in their lives. And the amazing thing is what he says is going to be tied to their character, the character that they have displayed at this point. Now, other men such as Noah and Abraham have given prophecies, but this is the first time in Scripture where we have a man giving an extensive prophecy. Uh, God has given some prophecies, and you remember his prophecy, the first one regarding the Messiah, way back in Genesis 3.15 when he was speaking to the serpent. And he said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, the devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we learn from that passage that the Messiah will be a human person, the offspring of a woman. Now, what can we learn in our passage today? We're going to see another reference to the Messiah, the Messiah who is going to come. And we're going to see him identified as a Jewish human person and also as an individual ruler. So be listening for that verse as we come to it. The blessing of Joseph's boys, this would be Ephraim and Manasseh. In verse 1, chapter 48, we see that Joseph was told that his dad was sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh the firstborn and Ephraim, to visit their grandfather. When they arrived, Jacob began reminiscing a bit, as we elderly people are tend to do, uh, we, remind, we are reminded of something that happened in the past, and then we want to tell you about it. We want to tell everybody about it, even though you've probably heard it a dozen times. Well, that's not such a bad thing, because Jacob is reminding us to rehearse what God is doing in our lives. And that is exactly what he does. This should be the subject of many of our conversations. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, that's Bethel in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. We remember that scene as Jacob's ladder. In verses 5 and 6, if you're following in the scripture, Jacob stated that Joseph's two sons would be his. In other words, he was adopting them. Now, why would he do that? Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, had forfeited his inheritance due to his immorality. 
In such a case, the father would have the option of transferring the inheritance to another son or sons who would be more suited for the responsibility. So the inheritance of the firstborn will be transferred directly to Ephraim and Manasseh, thus giving Joseph, their dad, a double portion of the inheritance. And this is mentioned also in verse 22 in that chapter. Jacob had clearly demonstrated that he had the character necessary to perform the duties of the firstborn. He was dependable, he was trustworthy, he was responsible, and he certainly trusted in the Lord, as we've seen throughout the tenure of his stay in Egypt and even before that time. So in verse 14, when Jacob was giving the family birthright to the secondborn Ephraim, Instead of the firstborn Manasseh, Joseph didn't like that too well, and he tried to cross his hands back the other way, but Jacob said, no, this is the way it's going to be. And we see there another instance of God blessing the secondborn rather than the firstborn. He doesn't always do it that way, but in several cases he did. He blessed Isaac instead of Ishmael. He blessed Jacob instead of Esau. Joseph instead of Reuben, and now Ephraim instead of Manasseh. So Jacob's blessing was another example of the inspired word of God speaking through a man. Genesis 48 and verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, The angel which redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. In verse 15, we see a first reference in the Bible, and it's the reference to the Lord as our shepherd, God as our shepherd. Where you see the words, fed me, That's probably better translated, uh, has been my shepherd. And that's what we read this morning in the English Standard Version. We have an entire chapter in the book of Psalms describing God as our shepherd. Then in verse 16, we see another first use of a word in Scripture, and it's the word redeemed. Now, has an angel ever redeemed anyone in the sense that we think? Many scholars would say this is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. He is our Redeemer. The angel which redeemed me from all evil. God had fulfilled his word to Jacob, and he had protected him, and he had provided for him, just as he promised when he first spoke to him way back in Genesis 28 and verse 15. Now we've got Ephraim with the blessing, And it's interesting to note that later on in Joshua, chapter 18 and verse 1, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that represented God's presence with his people. You remember there was the tabernacle and there was a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. And when the cloud moved, the people were to move. Well, when they came into the promised land, that tabernacle was set up in the land of Ephraim at a place called Shiloh. 
Shiloh means rest bringer. And in chapter 49, we will see that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. In other words, until the presence of the Lord comes in the Messiah, the incarnation of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Joshua was also from the tribe of Ephraim, and they became the dominant tribe up in the north after Jeroboam and Rehoboam had their split. Verse 20, And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now Jacob is moving on to the blessing of his sons. Moses writes this in poetic form, so we'll see vivid imagery as we go through these blessings. Genesis 49, verse 1, Jacob summoned all of his sons to come to him because he was going to tell them what would happen in days to come. His blessing carries strong prophetic overtones, and he ties the blessing to the character of the recipient. Enduring Word Ministries has published an excellent summary of the proceedings that take place, and I have used that in preparation for our consideration of these verses. Genesis 49 and verse 3 and 4, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Reuben should have inherited the rights as the firstborn. But evidently the guy had some pride, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, and we know that he was plagued by immorality. Now, to his credit, he's the one that insisted that Joseph not be killed, but be cast into the pit. I think he intended to come back later and rescue Joseph. But he had some evil impulses as well and was impetuous in his character, and that seemed to overrule the good that was there. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi were Jacob's second and third-born sons, and they were both indicted in the same incident when they conspired against the men of Shechem and later murdered them because of what had happened to their sister, Dinah. This is inspired scripture, and some people are interested in history, and some are not, but we can learn some things from this. And one of the things that we need to learn is that we should not take a casual approach to sin. Now, if a true believer repents of his sin and asks God's forgiveness, the guilt of his sin will be removed. But sometimes there are consequences that go on as there were in the life of King David. And sometimes those consequences can even go on beyond the grave. So sin is a terrible thing. 
And we don't want to pass down a legacy of sin to future generations that are coming after us. Their problems seem to be ungodly anger, characterized by this self-will, uncontrollable as water. And God says in verse 6, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now the dividing and the scattering turned out to be a curse for Simeon, but actually turned out to be a blessing for Levi. And we see another example of God's grace. Without God's grace, we wouldn't be sitting here listening to his word today. You remember that the Levites were charged with divine service and uh, taking care of the holy things, and they were scattered throughout the entire nation of Israel. It was said of them that the Lord was their inheritance in Joshua 13.33. So uh, they went about through the years helping out at the temple, serving there later when the temple was built and doing the things that the Lord had outlined for them to do. Now we come to Judah, the fourthborn. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From, my, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth from uh, white from milk. Uh, this would be wine. This would be great growing country where uh, Judah was situated. Now, the word given by God to Jacob, to Judah, was again an example of God's mercy and God's grace because Judah had his own share of failures, including the proposal to profit from Jacob's, Joseph's predicament by selling him for money. That was Judah's idea. And then the mistreatment of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, including immorality. But he did become surety for Benjamin when Joseph required his presence down in Egypt. Judah's blessing is all about the sovereign rule in the land of those who would be appointed to leadership. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The true kings of Israel and eventually the Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. It would be about 650 years before this prophecy began to be fulfilled in the reign of King David. And then it would be 1,600 years before the Messiah would come to complete the prophecy. And he holds the scepter even today. From the time of David's reign, we see those in the, from the tribe of Judah ruling over God's people, the true rulers down in Judah, as opposed to the evil kings up in Israel. By 7 AD, Israel had lost the last vestige of their self-government to the Herods and to Rome. But by that time, a little baby had already been born in Bethlehem's manger. 
And he probably by that time was already meeting with the scribes and the doctors of the law down at the temple. God was preparing his Messiah to take over the rulership. Zebulun shall also dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Here Jacob continues with the sons of Leah, but skiffing to his overall tenth-born and ninth-born sons. The tribe of Zebulun settled in a parcel of land between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. A modern translation would read, Zebulun shall dwell at the seashore. The tribe of Zebulun is remembered for their loyalty to King David and supplying him more soldiers than any other tribe for his army. 1 Chronicles 12.33, Of Zebulun there were 50,000 who went out in the army who could draw up in battle formation with all kinds of weapons of war and helped David with an undivided heart. That's a good description, an undivided heart. They were loyal to him. Then we come to Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw the resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Issachar was the third largest tribe according to the census in Numbers 26. Uh, Leupold in his commentary said that although Issachar was in abundance in their size, they must have been docile and lazy. They enjoyed the good land that they'd been assigned to, but they were not really willing to fight for it. As a result, they were eventually pressed into servitude, bearing burdens for their masters. Does that remind you of some Christians? We've got all the blessings that we have recounted in First Light and even that we talked about in the service today. And we just bask in the sunlight of God's love, but we're not willing to fight as Christian soldiers for the promotion of, of his kingdom. And sometimes we're not willing to take a stand when a stand needs to be taken. Dan shall be a judge, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. The tribe of Dan did judge through Samson, one of the more prominent judges from that tribe, but the Danites were a rowdy bunch of troublemakers. They initiated the practice of idolatry in Israel in Judges 18.30. Jeroboam set up one of his golden calves in Dan, 1 Kings 12. Later, the prophet Amos condemned Dan as a center of idolatry, and the treachery of the Danites is well documented in Judges 18 by their unprovoked attack on the peaceful community at Laish. It's interesting that they are omitted in Romans in Revelation 7 of the listing of the tribes. I don't know all the reasons why they are omitted there, but it might have been because of their treachery and their idol worship. Now, Jacob is getting ready to make a statement, and I think he is thinking of all the rough times that are going to come 
for his offspring, and he reminds himself of something. For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. This is the first mention of salvation of that word in the Scripture. The Hebrew word for salvation used in this verse 18 is Yeshua. Jacob is calling out for God's salvation that will be personified through Jesus, whose name is the very same in the Hebrew, Yeshua. So Jacob is reminding himself, God is our salvation, and we will wait for him, no matter what the circumstances may be that are going on about us. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. The tribe of Gad would suffer many assaults later on at the hands of the enemy, but they would resist their adversaries and harass them. At Gad's birth, his mother Leah had predicted a troop cometh, and she called his name Gad. So Gad is connected with war. First Chronicles 12.8 And from the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness mighty men of valor, men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, and whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were swift as gazelles on the mountains. That'd be a pretty good description of Christian soldiers, wouldn't it? We can handle our weapons from Ephesians 6 very well. Our faces are bold as lions. Then we come to Asher. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. The allotment given to the tribe of Asher included the lowlands of Mount Carmel on the Mediterranean, right on up north as far as Tyre. So this was a very fertile land. Solomon uh, drew from this land oil and wheat, not only for his own household, but also for that of King Hiram. So they produced not only the necessities of life, but also some luxuries to enjoy. I wonder if they were grateful to God for what he had given. Naphtali is like a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Now I can assure you that many of these prophecies are very difficult to understand even for the great Bible scholars. But as best I can tell, it looks like the tribe of Naphtali was able to move in freedom and independence in the allotment of land in which they were given. And then as for the beautiful words, here Jesus later taught and ministered the words of life to the people. And we see that in the New Testament Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the reason of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, Upon them a light has dawned, and that's important because that would be ourselves, the Gentiles. Joseph gets a much larger blessing than anyone else. 
And we can understand that because Joseph is the prominent man in the last part of the book of Genesis. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by the spring, its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your fathers who helped you, and from the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Jacob and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. The references to war probably talking about later conflicts that Jacob's offspring will suffer. Joseph is given this more bountiful blessing because he is living up now to the rights of the firstborn to which he has been assigned and God had accomplished much through his dedicated life and his ministry. In this blessing, if you were noticing, we saw five titles of God. That indicated that Jacob had a pretty good understanding of who God was. The mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, God of your father, and the Almighty. Finally, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. Benjamin was a tribe with a reputation for fierceness that's attested in later passages in the Scripture. Judges 20 recounts the occasion when all of the tribes came to war against Benjamin because of the wickedness that was committed in the city of Gibeah in Benjamin. And that concludes Jacob's blessings of his sons. What in the world does all of that mean to us today? Well, in closing, we want to see if there's any possible relevance between God's blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their blessing of their sons, and our blessing today, our blessing others, God's blessing on us today. Certainly, there is a connection, and here it is. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Now, the law is not a curse, but the law threatens to punish us for sin, and that's the curse. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the blessing of the Spirit through faith. Now, there is a blessing that surpasses anything we can surmise here this morning. We get the blessing along with Abraham as a part of that covenant that was made with him that we've been studying for these months now. And that's further clarified back in verse 6. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations shall be blessed in you. 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now that is a blessing. And whatever else is going on in our lives, we ought to be rejoicing because of that blessing. Because God could have just kept it with his chosen people of the Old Testament. But he broadened it out to all nations. The word in verse 14 for blessing is eulogia. It means to speak well of someone. It means to bless or invoke with a benediction upon someone that they might prosper. It would be well to eulogize somebody before they die at their funeral when it could do them some good. So we're talking now about speaking well of others, even speaking to them a blessing. And the reason I believe this is important is that the Bible teaches us that words have the power to build up emotionally and spiritually, or they have the power to tear down. Forget that proverb that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That might be something you can grit your teeth and say to yourself to help you stand the onslaught of the words, but really the Bible indicates something other than that. The Bible indicates that, as we said, these words are powerful symbols, and here is the Scripture. Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. I take that to mean that those who love to use words, either good or bad, will reap fruit accordingly as to how they utilize the words. And here's another, Proverbs 12.18, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 27.9, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Now, in just a few minutes, let's ask this question. How can you encourage someone with a spoken or written word? Maybe you've done it before. Maybe you haven't done it lately. Maybe you have a habit of doing it all the time. That's a good thing. You can speak or write a good word to them. You can intercede for them with words based on Scripture. Somebody who was pretty good at that was the Apostle Paul, Acts 20 and verse 2. When he, Paul, had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And his encouragement was based upon the encouragement that God gives us through Scripture. And here it is, Romans 15 and verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have a unity of spirit and purpose, we're going to be praising God together because of the hope that He gives us through this perseverance and encouragement. We're not going to be bickering with each other because we're going to be too busy praising God for this hope that He's given. Now, you might say, well, I don't have time to be writing out any elaborate blessings. What's all that about? Well, we ask the question, can a very brief word of encouragement 
do any good? And the answer is emphatically yes. Because we're going to see some scriptures where the word is in the singular. The word word is singular. Check it out. <clears throat> Romans 12, <clears throat> excuse me, Romans 12, 25. Anxiety in the heart of a man weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Now I'm thinking it might be more than just high, but uh, it could be a short word of encouragement. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. Singular. Proverbs 25.11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Fitly spoken, spoken in the right circumstances. And what a great talent, a skill you might develop that would be, to be able to know what to say in just the right circumstances. Gary Smalley and John Trent, writing about the blessing, tell the story of Mean Mike. That's Mean, M-E-A-N, Mike. Actually, the young man's name is Mike, but when he was a toddler, his family began to call him Mean Mike. Why would they do that? Well, Mike had a terrific grip as a young child, and if anyone tried to take something away from him, he would snarl and hold on with all his might. So the nickname of Mean Mike was a humorous way to picture his bulldog tenacity in holding on to something. But the nickname soon became more than that. It became a way of life for Mike. When he grew older, he became quite a bully at home and at school. Everyone at home still called him Mean, and he lived up to his name. The nickname probably gave him an edge in high school football because he was a great linebacker, Mean Mike but it wreaked havoc in his personal relationships. He was always too tough to get close to anyone. Little by little, constantly hearing he was mean burned its way into his character. Today, Mean Mike is in a state prison in Arizona. Isn't it sad how children can live up to their negative nicknames? Mike certainly did, and it set a tragic course for his life. On the other hand, a brief word of encouragement can have the opposite effect. Yvonne and I went to the Andrews Orthopedic Institute in Pensacola this past week. It's a large facility with some 30 physicians practicing medicine there. People come from all over the world to see Dr. Andrews. And as Providence would have it the night before our appointment, we were eating dinner at a restaurant right across the place from where we were staying. And a lady walked in with her party and sat down at the table next to us. And it was Dr. Andrew's wife. And we had a lengthy conversation with her, her daughter and her granddaughters. And she gave us some very encouraging words about what would take place next day at the clinic. And the next day we were sitting in the waiting room to see Dr. Smith and a guy burst through the door in full surgical garb, and it was Dr. Andrews. I came to check on you. He said, pull up your pants leg. He said, that's the one that's hurting you, isn't it? I said, yes, it is. He said, I can tell you exactly what Dr. Smith is going to say to you. He's going to say, get them fixed. And he was out the door. He was in a hurry. But then a little later, he came back, and he sat down. He had a conversation about his undergraduate days at LSU, when Yvonne was a student there, 
And then we went in and talked to Dr. Smith. And needless to say, it was a very encouraging day. And we came back with hope that these guys know what they're talking about and they'll be able to fix us up. So how's the best way to give a blessing to someone? Give them an encouraging word now. Don't wait till later on. How would you do it now so that it might do some good? Well, some ideas here. Ask the Lord to direct you through Scripture as to the wording of your blessing. What would He want you to say that would be based on the encouragement that He gives through Scripture? Personalize the blessing to fit the present circumstances in the person's life. That means you're going to have to know what's going on in the person's life if you're going to really respond to it. Consider the model that's given in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That's a pretty good blessing. Write down the blessing you intend to give. I remember hearing Mrs. Elizabeth Elliot say a number of times, if you haven't written it down, you haven't really thought it. So write it down. And then speak it or write it directly to the person for whom it is intended. And finally, continue to pray the blessing for that person. Sometimes I take a little shorthand in my book so I can continue to pray whatever I'm asking God to do for the person who needs the prayer. So in closing, here is the question. Do you personally possess the redemption that Christ purchased for us by shedding His blood at Calvary? Are you certain? If not, join me in this prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessing upon our lives that you were thinking about us by name before the foundation of the earth. We recognize that you are holy and we are sinful And we see, Lord, in our better moments what sin does to us. But realize, unless we have Christ, we don't have any better moments. So we would confess to you right now that we are sinful creatures. We need your forgiveness. We need cleansing and a new heart. We need the power of your Spirit to enable us to live the life that you have called us to live. Lord, we want you to be in control of our lives. We want you to make us to be persons of value for the sake of your kingdom. We want to be a blessing to other people, even as you have been a blessing to us through Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to slow down from the busyness of life and to consider how we may bless you and how we can bless others. Thank you for every spiritual blessing that you have given us in Christ, and we pray in his holy name.
Amen.